We hope you are enjoying the old-time radio programs on the Radio Then.network podcast. You will find many biographies and audio clips from the past on our blog. www.radiothen.network Check it out and bookmark the blog which also indexes our podcasts. www.radiothen.network A studio in an old mansion on Jefferson Avenue in Detroit, Michigan. A group of actors gathered around a microphone. The time, 7.30, any Monday, Wednesday, or Friday night. The airwaves resound with the familiar strains of the William Tell Overture. The director throws a cue, and a voice intones the opening words that stir millions of listeners. A fiery horse with the speed of light, a cloud of dust, and a hearty high silver, the Lone Ranger. The voice was mine, Fred Foy. The program, The Lone Ranger, destined to become an American legend. And the legend began at Bryant's Gap. Butch Cavendish headed a pack of outlaws. They struck without warning to steal and kill. Open fire on that wagon train. Wipe them out to the last man. The Cavendish gang attacked ranches and towns as well as wagon trains. Everyone feared Butch Cavendish. His gang grew rich and powerful. Finally, the Texas Rangers learned where Butch Cavendish and his gang were hiding. Six Texas Rangers guided their horses along a canyon floor to arrest the Cavendish gang. Presently, Captain Reed signaled a halt. Right in, boys. We'll wait here until a scout returns. Do you think it was a good idea to send Collins, our guide, on ahead? It was Captain Reed's younger brother who asked the question. The captain explained that Collins, who was not a Texas Ranger, was the only man who knew the country and who could scout ahead for information. Then, while the Texas Rangers waited for the guide's return, the captain said to his younger brother, My wife and son are coming from the east. If something happens to me, and you survive, well, I know you'll take care of her and Danny. Right. I'm going to count on you to resign from the Rangers and work that silver mine we staked out. See that my son and his mother get my share. I promise. Here comes Collins, the scout. Who? 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 What's the word, Collins? Good news, Captain Reed. It's all clear. I scouted the rim on both sides of the canyon and found no sign of the cabinage outfit. All right, boys, let's go. Get, get up there. Get up. Come on, come on. Get up. Get up. Collins, the guide, lagged behind unnoticed by the Texas Rangers, who moved in single file along the floor of the rock-strewn canyon. They didn't know that Collins had lied, that Butch Cavendish and his killers were waiting in ambush on the rim on both sides of the gap. Here come those Rangers, boys, just as Collins told us. Now, we can't get down to the floor of the canyon without going a long way back, and it'll be dark in half an hour. So we'll just keep pouring lead into them from up here until we're sure they're dead. Then we won't be taking any chances. Now open fire! The rangers leaped from their saddles and spread out as they returned the fire from both sides of the canyon. Soon, four of the rangers were killed. Captain Dan Reed and his brother, wounded several times, kept fighting side by side. Then the captain fell mortally wounded, and a moment later, his younger brother, the last of the rangers, slumped to the ground. waited and watched for any sign of life from the rangers, then rode away, convinced that all six men in Bryant's Gap were dead. Sunset came. 
then darkness. an Indian examined the bodies by moonlight. After examining the first five men, he muttered softly, oh, them dead. Then he came to the sixth man, the younger brother of the captain. And this man lies. The Indian lifted this man tenderly in his strong arms and carried him to a nearby cave where he bathed and dressed the wounds. Then he took a spade from one side of the cave and returned to the canyon, where he worked steadily until the dead men had been buried. Returning to the cavern, he sat watching through the remaining hours of the night. Daybreak found the ranger stronger, but by nightfall, the wounds had become infected. The Indian called on all his knowledge to treat the wounded man. He went day and night without rest. the morning of the fourth day when the ranger opened his eyes and for the first time the Indian saw them clear and calm. Are you weak? Me glad. Yes, I... but so weak. You wounded man. I... I remember an ambush. That right. Me find you in canyon. Carry you here to cave. It... it's daylight. It morning. Then I... I must have been unconscious all night. It's several days since fight in canyon. Several days. Ah. There, there's something familiar about you. You? You remember? Many years ago, you only boy. You find Indian boy in trouble. You save life, Indian boy. Yes. Your name is Tonto. That right. Years ago, you called me... Kimosabe. That right. And you still Kimosabe. It means faithful friend. Tonto, there were six of us in that canyon. The others. What about the other rangers? Other ranger. All dead. Dead. Uh. One was my brother. You only ranger left. You lone ranger. The Lone Ranger. Toto, those killers know me by sight. If they know one man escaped, they'll look for him. And them not know one escape. Tonto bury five men, make six grave. Crook think you die with others. Good. Then my name shall be forever buried with my brother and my friends. From now on, my face must be concealed. A disguise, perhaps, or a mask. That's it, a mask. I'm the only one who knows about the Cavendish gang. With your help, Tonto, I'll get every one of those crooks. In the ranger's eyes, there was a light that must have burned in the eyes of knights in armor. A light that through the ages lifted the souls of strong men who fought for justice, for God. I'll be 
the Lone Ranger. That time in history is referred to today as radio's golden age. We listened, and our imagination painted the pictures. I grew up in that era when radio was king and enjoyed the wealth of thrills and excitement it offered, which, regretfully, today is only a memory. I don't mean to sound like the old vaudevillian who sits back and recalls his days of glory in the spotlight. To use the title of another famous radio show, Time Marches On, and with its march comes change. But those radio years will always be special to me. I still recall coming home from school, curling up in front of our impressive Atwater Kent console radio, following the adventures of Tom Mix, Jack Armstrong, the All-American Boy, and Little Orphan Annie. Just some of the afternoon serials. In the evening after supper, the family gathered in the living room and listened to the antics of Amos and Andy, Eddie Cantor, the Lux Radio Theater, and the incomparable Jack Benny. With radio as the focal point of entertainment in the home, we shared our evenings as a family unit and enjoyed all the laughter and excitement together. To me, it was a wonderful age in which to have grown up. Of course, every Monday, Wednesday, and Friday evening at 7.30, we shared the thrilling adventures of the Lone Ranger. I'd never have believed in my wildest dreams that sometime in the future, I would be a part of those adventures. As far back as I can remember, I was always a ham. Acting was my first love. Church plays, school plays, you name it. Just wave the red flag of a script in front of me and I'd come charging in. I lived in movie theaters. Whenever the bill changed, I was there. And the hours spent at the family radio with the dramas were unending. Those were the ingredients. Mix them all together, and the result is a young man with a burning desire to pursue an acting career. So, with a script prepared from the inside cover of a Nelson Eddy record album, I recorded my first audition platter. This is Fred Foy speaking, presenting 12 beloved American songs sung by Nelson Eddy with piano accompaniment by Theodore Paxson and orchestra accompaniment conducted by Nathaniel Shilkret. Few artists in any field have commanded the affection and respect of the American public as Nelson Eddy commands them. His vocal art, highly developed yet warmly personal and sympathetic, wins the respect of exacting critics and just plain music lovers alike. And his extraordinary magnetism, his thoroughly American background, breeding and characteristics, achieve for him a very special place in American affections. With graduation from high school in 1938, I began my quest by knocking on the door of every radio station in the Detroit area, making sure to drop off my audition record. Well, unfortunately, the ranks were closed to a newcomer with little previous experience. So my blossoming career was nipped in the bud, and I found myself accepting a rising career at Kern's department store as an elevator operator. Well, call it what you will, I still think of it as a preview of things to come. The assignment I was given during the Christmas season at Kearns was operating the Lone Ranger Toyland Express. I wore western garb complete with mask and white hat. 
Oh, I wonder how many starry-eyed youngsters actually thought I was the fabled masked man. While I spent my days at Kearns, two nights a week were spent with the Rieblings at WMBC, a 250-watt independent Detroit station. Al Riebling and his wife wrote and produced The Old Opry House, a parody on the hero-villain melodramas, and Time Turns Back, a documentary. Their cast was gleaned from struggling newcomers like myself, and we worked for experience, no pay. The training given me by the Rieblings was invaluable, and I shall always be grateful. On Sunday afternoons, I worked an announcing shift at the station, again for experience. But finally, perseverance paid off, and I was offered a permanent staff position. Hey, I was on cloud nine. And best of all, I'd be leaving Kearns and a weekly salary of $14.95 to begin my on-the-air career for the magnificent weekly sum of $25. Well, thus I began to learn my profession, a jack-of-all-trades, announcer, director, writer, program coordinator, even janitor. When they say we also swept the floors in those bygone days, they weren't kidding. It was a time spent constantly learning, smoothing out the rough spots, gaining confidence. Finally, I was ready to move on. The last four letters of the alphabet, WXYZ, I consider to be my own personal lucky charm. They flashed brightly from the radio tower atop the Maccabees building in Detroit and beckoned me to my first major job in broadcasting. For me, it was a magic moment when I became a member of the WXYZ staff. It was while I was pursuing my career at WXYZ that I received a special invitation from Uncle Sam requesting my presence at my local draft board to audition for an unlimited run with the U.S. Army. It was an offer I couldn't refuse and an audition I knew I would have no trouble winning. Well, very soon I found myself in an ill-fitting set of khaki threads, but happily an assignment in Army Special Services. It was on February 14th that my valentine came in the form of an unexpected cruise to the Middle East, specifically Cairo, Egypt. My special assignment, delivering news on Egyptian state broadcasting, plus playing host for the USO and such personalities as Andre Castellanitz and Lily Pons, Nelson Eddy, and Jack Benny. If I were to select the most memorable moment of those days of broadcasting in Cairo, it would have to be without a doubt my lucky meeting and brief encounter with one of the marvelous talents of the entertainment world, Jack Benny. In a special broadcast from Cairo, I played his Don Wilson. It was then and remains today an unforgettable moment. But Fred, Fred... I wish you had another first name. I don't know. I've, um, I've really had a great time here in Egypt. I've seen the pyramids and the Sphinx and the Nile. Gosh, imagine seeing the Nile River. I can't believe it. You know, Jack, there's an old saying about that river. He who drinks of the waters of the Nile will return again. I know, Fred, I know. I took a drink of it last night and I returned a little sooner than I expected. <laughs> What 
I must say one thing, Fred. I certainly did enjoy the pyramid. Well, while you were there, Jack, did you visit the tomb of King Tut? King Tut? No, no, I didn't bother with that. He's so corny now, you know. That's for Fred Allen. That isn't for me. When my career in the Army was over, I returned home and rejoined the staff at WXYZ. In July of 1948, Christmas came early for me and George W. Trendle was Santa Claus. I signed a contract as announcer-narrator of The Lone Ranger and began my long ride with a masked man and Indian. On July 2nd, 1948, I made my debut. and a hearty pile silver, the Lone Ranger. With his faithful Indian companion, Tonto, the daring and resourceful masked rider of the plains led the fight for law and order in the early western United States. Nowhere in the pages of history can one find a greater champion of justice. Return with us now to those thrilling days of yesteryear. From out of the past come the thundering hoofbeats of the great horse, Silver. The Lone Ranger rides again. Jed Morris was a large, good-natured rancher who took things as they came and did what he could to make life easier for other people. Jed finished his breakfast one morning, then leaned back in his chair and spoke to his wife, Miranda. Uh, Miranda, I reckon you heard about the folks who've moved into the Marvin place west of here, haven't you? I can't say as I have, Jed. Uh, I remember the support given to me by the cast members and production crew. I was the new boy on the block. And they guided me through my first network broadcast like a mother hen watching over her newborn. They were then and remain today my dearest friends and without a doubt some of the most versatile and talented actors in the business. My respect and admiration has grown over the years and they hold a special place in my heart and memory. Here are just a few of the familiar voices. Bill Saunders as Butch Cavendish, and Paul Hughes as Thunder Martin. Howdy, stranger. Howdy. Mr. Hornblow Range? Yep, and I'm Top Hand. State your business. You must be Thunder Martin. Yes, that's my name. Is it true that you're a friend of the Lone Ranger? Yep. I have an important message for the masked man. Where is he? Well, he's traveling with a young jet named Dan Reed. Just uh, leave the message with me and I'll give it to the Lone Ranger's Indian pile. He'll be here soon. Oh, I must see the Lone Ranger. It's a matter of life and death. His death. Well, he said something about going to a place called Bryant's Gap. Bryant's Gap. It's two, three days' travel south of here. Yes, I know the place. Steady, fellow. Yeah. And all gone. It's a matter of life and death. I wonder what he meant. Elaine Alpert as Clarabelle Hornblow with Gilly Shea as the sheriff. $3,000 for the house, the land, and the livestock. 
But it's no bargain. I'll put up the cash, Sheriff. Well, hold on, ma'am. Have you seen the place? Nope. I don't think you'll want it. I'm not buying it for myself, Sheriff. I've heard the Lone Ranger's plan to outsmart Wink Tatum, and uh, I think it'll work. Hey, uh, Claire, Bell, as... $3,000 is a lot of cash to lose if anything should go wrong with a plan. Nothing will go wrong if you do your part, Thunder. Uh, yeah, but... Besides, um, if I lose the cash, <laughs> I'll just take it out of your wages. You got it. It'll take me forever to pay you $3,000. Oh, calm down, Thunder. I'm not worried about the risk. The Lone Ranger's plan won't fail. Now, Sheriff, if you'll take me to see the banker... I'll make arrangements for my bank to get the cash here pronto so the deal can go through. Bob Martin as Dan Reed. A brother and I discovered that mine long ago, Dan, before you were born. Well, that was before you and my dad joined the Texas Rangers, wasn't it? Yes. When we joined the Rangers, we couldn't work the mine, so we kept the location a secret. Your father's share of that property is now yours, Dan. Someday, you may become very wealthy by starting large-scale operations there. Oh, I don't care about that. I just want to travel with you and Tonto. Thanks, Dan. But later, I'd like to discuss that with you. Ernie Winstanley, in the part of John and Elaine Alpert, playing his wife. Inside. Oh, this is the answer to a prayer. Yes. There's a stove and firewood. And straw in the stalls. I'll make a bed for Davy beside the stove. I suppose we should have stayed at home. And simply done nothing. No, we had to try and get Davy to a doctor. We'd have made it if it hadn't been for the storm. What a Christmas Eve. Snowbound. In a stable. And with no way to reach a doctor. Oh, oh darling. If there were only something we could do for him, John. I'm sure it's appendicitis. He needs a doctor. I'll start the fire. It should warm up in a minute. I'll get some straw. Rollin Parker as Nick Blaine. Mister, the only thing that can save Davy is an operation, isn't it? That's right. An operation costs money, and Sinclair probably can't afford it. All right, I'm the man who can. You get the boy to Mountain City, and I'll pay for the operation. I have plenty on deposit at the Mountain City Bank. Under the name of Smith? You don't have to be told who I am. I'm Nick Blaine, Devlin's ex-partner. Are you? I suppose people heard us arguing at the hotel room tonight. But when I hit him, I swear I didn't mean to kill him. J. Michael as the doctor. Ooh, Dr. Henry Warren? Yes, Toto. And I killed Devlin. I went to his room and leveled a gun at his heart. I told him who I was and why I meant to kill him. That he'd driven my father to suicide. But I couldn't pull the trigger. Devlin took the gun away from me. Then how did it happen... How was he shot? It was afterward, when he was pointing the gun at me and laughing. He said he was going to get rid of me and claim self-defense. I jumped at him. It was then that it happened. In trying to fight me off, the gun was turned toward him and... it went off. You're claiming self-defense? It would be hard to prove, wouldn't it? That doesn't matter. Harry Goldstein as Lynn. Lee Allman, his wife. Dick Beals as his son. To go back to the office, you know, Helen, to get that gold aboard the boat tonight. Lynn, that's a big responsibility for you to take alone. You should have a guard along with you. Why don't you stop by and ask the constable? Honey, stop a... worrying. I've been putting the gold aboard alone for some time now, and I've never had any trouble. 
Anyway, it's only a short distance from the office to the boat landing. May I go with you, Papa? May I? Oh, heavens, Danny, you'll be in bed and asleep by the time your father drives to the boat. But I want to see you boat once more before it leaves. Ah, oh, please, Papa, let me go with you. <laughs> Do you think you can stay awake that long, son? Oh, sure, I'll stay awake. I'm... You really aren't thinking of taking him with you. Why not, honey? The kid wants to see the boat once more, and it sails at dawn. We'll be back home well before midnight. Well, all right, if you want to be bothered with him. Gee, I won't be a bother on Okay, son, it's all settled. We'll be leaving in a few minutes for the office. I have a lot to do before we drive to the boat. Paul Sutton as Sergeant Preston. Who are you? Sergeant Preston, Northwest Mounted Police. She's been ill with pneumonia. Pneumonia? Oh, yeah, yeah, now I remember. And maybe you can explain something to me. What do you mean? When I found you here, you were out of food and the wood box was empty. But later on, I found a perfectly good load of firewood dumped out in the underbrush in back of the cabin. Yeah, I can explain it all right. Jim Fletcher as Joe. How about some of you other gents grabbing a speed? Hey, hold on, Joe. Maybe we can get someone to do it for us. Hey, you injured. Yeah, I saw that red skin right up. Never thought of asking the dig for us. There's no harm in trying. Hey, Injun! Uh-huh. You call me? Yeah. You want a job doing yourself some cash money? You work for railroad? Not exactly, but we'll pay you well. The Lone Ranger and Tonto, Brace Beamer and John Todd. Look at Dan. Him kneel by grave. He's close to his father, Toto. Ah. And that where you, me, pledged friendship many year ago. This is a good time to renew that pledge. Kimasabi. Long as you live, long as me live, me ride with you. Yes, Toto. I couldn't carry on without you. As long as we ride, we'll travel together. After a few years with the show, I was asked to understudy the role of the Lone Ranger. Well, it simply meant I would read the Ranger's role in the first two rehearsals allowing Brace Beamer to arrive as late as 5 o'clock. However, opportunity knocked when Brace appeared for a broadcast with laryngitis. I stepped into the role. March 29, 1954. A few miles from Pecos, the Lone Ranger and his Indian companion, Tonto, rode leisurely along the trail that bordered the Bar F Ranch. Look, Kimasabi, little squaw and pony waiting near entrance to ranch. She's already seen us, Tonto. I hope my mask doesn't frighten her. Hello, mister. Hello, little girl. My name's Sally, and I live here. Um... Are you an outlaw? No, Sally. We're not outlaws. You needn't be frightened. Oh, I'm not frightened. Why do you wear that mask, mister? I have my reasons, Sally. Maybe if we meet again sometime, I'll tell you. Good. 
Aren't you afraid of that Indian? <laughs> Tonto is my friend. A very close and loyal friend. <laughs> that right, Sally. Him not need be afraid of me. You must be a good Indian. Daddy Jack says there are good Indians and bad ones. Just like there are good white men and bad ones. That's right. Who's Daddy Jack? Daddy Jack Fairfield. He's my adopted father and he owns the Bar F Ranch. Oh, I've heard of him. That's a fine pony you have, Sally. Daddy Jack gave him to me for my birthday. He gives me lots of nice presents. Today's my birthday. I'm 12 years old. Well, happy birthday. Mm, Did yeah. he give you that nice gold locket and chain, too? Oh, no. Mama gave me that before she died. She told me my real daddy has one just like it. See? It opens. There's a picture of Mommy and me when I was two years old. Well, your mother was very pretty. You look very much like her. You think I'm pretty? Of course. Ah, uh, you very pretty, little girl. Golly, thanks. I... I think you're both handsome. Honest. <laughs> uh, her get along all right when I grow up. Huh? <laughs> yes, Tonto. We might ride this way in about six years and see if Sally still thinks we're so handsome. You're joking with me. But I hope I'll see you again soon. And then you'll tell me about the mask. I'm sure we'll see you again, Sally. Well, I have to go now. I'm having a birthday party this afternoon. Goodbye, mister. Goodbye, Tonto. Goodbye, Sally. Get up, Scotty. Get up. Oh, her nice little girl. Yes, she is, and well-mannered. It's evident she's been brought up in the atmosphere of affection and security every child needs. Come on, Silver. Come on, come. I have the distinct honor of playing the part of the masked man once on radio. Well, after the broadcast, I received my greatest compliment from Brace himself, who said under no circumstances would he ever lose his voice again. And uh, he never did. My first recollection of the commanding figure that was radio's Lone Ranger, Brace Beamer, is the feeling I had at our first meeting that I was in the presence of the fabled masked man himself. Here was a man who in every way fulfilled the image your imagination painted of that masked hero of the Old West. Tall, handsome, rugged, adept as a horseman, and a man who loved the outdoor life and was skilled in the use of six guns and rifle alike. This was the picture his rich voice painted to radio audiences as they followed the exciting adventures of the masked rider, an image duplicated in the man himself. Whether on or off the air, Brace literally lived the role of the Lone Ranger. His casual clothes were cut in Western style, and when he dressed more formally, his accessories expressed the same theme. I remember a beautiful pair of cufflinks he wore that were miniature replicas of the Colt 45, and naturally they were fashioned in sterling silver. He found great personal satisfaction in visiting children's hospitals in the character of the ranger, bringing to youngsters that special thrill of meeting their masked hero. He was the lone ranger physically, mentally, and in his heart. Masked man. Yeah, there. I don't see him. Where'd he go? But I haven't had a chance to thank him yet. 
Well, I guess he just up and left when he saw everything was under control. See, he, uh, he has a habit of doing that. Well, uh, could you find him for us, Sheriff? Well, no, Capitan. Who is this hombre who is so well known as you say? That man is on the side of the law. And there's only one. Hey, Jiminy, you all stand here looking after that masked man like he was the president himself. Well, Granddad, I'll tell you this much. He's a man even the president admires and respects. You see, he's... Who is that masked man, Sheriff? Well, I, I found a silver bullet with the note he left. That means he's... You mean we're not prisoners any longer? We're free? You're free! Now go on and fill those homes you've all been dreaming of. And give thanks to... I know when I'm beaten. But there's one thing I'd like to know before you women take over. Who is the mash man? Colonel, he's the... By thunder, I have to know more about that Indian than you, mister. Come back, I say. Oh, dry up, Sheriff. Don't try to put on an act. What do you mean? You must have known all the time that he's... Well, Jim, I sure have got a lot of, to apologize for. It looks like I was wrong about everybody but the mash man. Who is he? He's... I'm not riding along with you unless you put handcuffs on that masked fella, too. Ah, you old fool, he's gone. Anyway, he's no owl hoot. He's not? And why is he wearing a mask? Uh, he's the... Uh... Marshal, is that true about the masked man? You know him? Only as the rest of you do. How you know him now? A stranger doing good for all. You see, he's Chief Big Bear. Who is that man? Him have Indian friend named Tonto. You know Tonto? Ah, and me know Tonto, friend of... That masked man sure saved our next, Dave. But who is he? Driver, he's the one man in all the world who my dad trusted. He's... Those are the ones we was chasing last night. Yeah. Oh, look at that masked man ride. What a fine man he is. He's wonderful. I saw how he shot the gun clean out of that Wynn Cooper's hand. Greatest shot I ever saw in my life. You know them? You know who the masked man is? Well, not who he is, not exactly. I just know he's the greatest rider, the greatest shot, and the greatest man this West has ever seen. I think you must be right. I know he saved my life. And my life, too. But, Lee, you say you know who the masked man is. Grateful as we are, we never did ask him. Who is he? Well, I'm surprised a soldier like you don't know, Major. There's only one great masked man in the West. And that's the Lone Ranger. Radio bloopers came in all forms and sometimes turned a broadcast into a shambles. I speak personally of a particular Sergeant Preston of the Yukon Show. On this day, the script centered around a young prospector in the frigid Yukon, who one day found a wolf cub starving and near death on his doorstep. He took him in, nursed him back to health, and when the wolf reached maturity, allowed him his freedom to return to the wild. The story progresses, and the young prospector is captured by outlaws wanting his gold claim and is left to die in the middle of the frozen wastes of the Yukon. As night closes in, the wolf pack gathers and surrounds the prospector. Suddenly, into the firelight steps the leader of the pack, 
the young prospector sees him, recognition dawns, and his line in the script reads, That hair, those eyes, those fangs, that's my wolf. Now, it must be understood that because the entire scene centers around the wolf pack and the inner feelings of the prospector, dialogue wasn't possible, so the scene was brought to life with pages of long, descriptive, dramatic narration. In essence, that one line from the prospector was the only dialogue for several pages, and I was in the spotlight telling the story. I recall the moment vividly. The show was on the air approaching a crucial, dramatic high point. I was at the microphone with Harry Goldstein playing the role of the young prospector directly across from me. We were eyeball to eyeball, and I was reading the words leading into his one line. The wolf pack gathered menacingly around the lone man, and then from the darkness into the firelight stepped the leader of the pack. A spark of recognition dawned in the young man's mind, and he spoke. This was Harry's one line, and as I looked across the mic at him, waiting for my cue, he said, That hair, those eyes, those fangs, that's my wife. Well, the director vanished from his chair in the booth, convulsed with laughter. Harry, realizing what he had said, broke up. All around me, cast, crew alike, are completely in convulsions. And there am I at the mic, with pages of narration, attempting in some fashion to blot out the scene around me and endeavor to speak without bursting into gales of laughter. Well, I somehow succeeded, but I'm sure the listening audience must have had the impression that someone was slowly strangling me. It was a Friday afternoon, payday, the weekend ahead, a winning combination that should have created its usual happy effect on all of us gathered in the studio. But not on this particular Friday, for we were about to perform the last live broadcast of The Lone Ranger. The time was 7.30. I stood in front of the microphone for the last time, hearing the strains of the William Tell Overture and waiting for the director, Chuck Livingston, in the booth to throw me the cue for the opening lines that had become a part of my life. Brace Beamer, as always, stood across the mic from me, and as I finished my opening lines... Return with us now to those thrilling days of yesteryear. From out of the past come the thundering hoofbeats of the great horse Silver. The Lone Ranger rides again. His voice rang out with the stirring sound of Hio Silver. I'm sure that ringing cry still haunts the studio that gave it birth. This time it rang with a note of finality and I found myself in sentimental emotions, visualizing the parade of characters that would live forever within these studio walls. Thunder Martin, the marvelous counterpart of Wallace Beery, created by Paul Hughes, whose guttural voice was as well-known as the Rangers. Butch Cavendish, as played by Bill Saunders, the outlaw who started it all with the ambush of the Texas Rangers at Bryant's Gap. Clarabelle, a Marjorie Maine sound-alike brought to life by Elaine Alpert, a character that shared the spotlight as a teammate of Thunder Martin. Dan Reed, the Lone Ranger's nephew, played with all the sparkle and verve of a youthful hero by Bob Martin. The endless line of sheriffs, bank robbers, greenhorns, rustlers, schoolmarms, mayors, and undercover agents. The sound of dance halls, saloons, cattle stampedes, gunfights, and Indian attacks. 
All would now be only remembered echoes filling a dark and empty studio. The clock registered eight o'clock, and we had committed our final live broadcast to the pages of history. I had no idea at the time that instead of this being a closing chapter, it was in reality the beginning of a legend. For today, whenever the William Tell Overture is played, we automatically expect to hear thundering hoofbeats and picture a tall masked man on a great white stallion riding on an errand of justice. And if we listen closely, we can once again hear that thrilling cry that sent tingles up our spine. Are you still there? Are you still there? 